So, uh, 1994 um, was quite possibly the greatest year of my life. I kind of thought about it this week and the past couple weeks as I've been preparing. And 2005 was pretty good. That was the year I graduated from college. It was the year that um, my wife, Cherie, uh, said yes to me and said, I do on a platform before God. And Okay, 2005 was the best year of my life. Um, I also started my first uh, uh, vocational ministry job that year. But two, 1994, close second. Okay, far down second. It was the second place. So 1994 was the year when I finally hit the minimum height of 48 inches to ride the big rides at the amusement park. And you may not think this is a big deal, but to me it was a huge deal because typically in my friend group and in uh, my cousin group, I was the oldest, but I was never really the tallest. And so uh, this, this specific year was, uh, it was several years after the, the greatest ride that has ever been uh, invented and created was, was opened at, at Cedar Point. And the ride was the Magnum XL 200. Now, if you don't know anything about roller coasters, let me just say this at the time was the biggest, it was the fastest, it had the tallest hill, it had the most curves, it had tunnels, it went upside down. It was everything you could possibly want in a roller coaster. And my thought for that year when I finally hit the minimum height was this summer, I'm going to ride the Magnum and I'm going to ride it every single moment of the times that I visit Cedar Point this year. And I remember the first time that we were going to Cedar Point that year with the family, and it was several of my friends and some of my cousins, and we got together the night before, and we stayed all night at one of my cousins' house, and we stayed up trying to plan out how we were going to make sure that we rode this ride. We wanted to get as many in as we could. We wanted to sneak in the meals and the bathroom breaks when we had to, but we wanted to make sure that we, we spent as many moments as we could on this ride. And the crux of our plan was that we were going to make sure that we were the first ones in line. So that meant getting there early, that meant running to the ride when we first got there, and that way we could get on before there was any wait at all. And so we get to the park that morning, we got there when it was opening, and we began to run as a group of 11, 12-year-olds to the, to the ride, and we finally get to the ride, and there's a sign that's adjustable that tells you how long the wait is, and it says three hours. And so right off the bat, we realized other people had our idea like, this is not a new revolutionary thing to, to, to get there early and to try to ride it first. And so we decided, fine, that's, that's okay. We're going to ride anyway. And so we get in line and we start to do this maze thing. So like if you've ever gone to a, a, a roller coaster park or a place where there's maze, if you've been to Disney World and you didn't get your fast pass, you're going back and forth and it's like you're getting cheese at the end or something. And so you're going back and forth and we're doing all the things you can, you know, hours of, of waiting. And so we're, we're playing 20 questions and we're playing I Spy. And there's that inevitable you touch somebody else's hand that's going the other way and then for the next hour and a half you look them in the eye like awkwardly yeah that happened plenty and so we finally get to the base of the where the roller coaster you start to walk up the stairs to get to where the roller coaster comes in and departs and we get to the base of the stairs and we can start to hear like the 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 uh the announcements about the specs of the ride like how tall it is how long it is how how fast it is and all these different things and we get to the base of the stairs and we're looking around like wow this is this is like a big deal And so we start to walk up the stairs as people are moving through, and we get to the top of the steps. And as soon as we get to the top of the steps, he says, three, two, one, go over the loudspeaker, and the car that was there flies out. And I looked at everybody else, and everybody else was like white, and I assume I was too. And I I look at my youngest cousin. Now, he wasn't the shortest, because I was, but he was the youngest, and his name was Justin, okay? 
maybe his real name, maybe not. And I, I put my arm around him. I said, Justin, we're gonna ride, we're gonna ride together. Because I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna be the best, you know, I'm gonna be the big cousin, the best I can be for him. And so we decided we're gonna go front car, which is a little bit longer wait. You're gonna go out and around. And so we start to go through the line and we get to the edge, and I'm on this side, and I could see the hill at that point because the roof went out just so far, and I could see it, and I thought, oh, I'll keep you over here. So I didn't let him see the hill. I kept him to the side, and as we got to the front, and here's the line where the next ones to get on the ride. Uh, the car pulls up. The people in the car get out and, you know, how was your ride? It was awesome. They're all getting out. The hair's messed up. And so I turn around to the guys behind me. I'm like, guys, this is going to be awesome. And just as I do, Justin kind of squirts past me. And as I'm turning, I just see a flash of him going through the car, past the exit, and down the little ramp to exit. I just see his head bobbing all the way down. And I was like, okay, all right, doing this solo. And so I got in the car. I had a great time on the ride. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed all the twists and the turns and all that kind of stuff. And it was so much fun. We decided, you know, we were going to ride it more and more. But when we get to the exit, I waited for everybody else before they could get all the way down the ramp. I said, guys, I don't know what happened. You guys saw Justin ran away. You know, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. And so we start to make our way down uh, the ramp and we get to the bottom and Justin's like, hey, guys, I had to go to the bathroom. We should go ride the pirate ride. It's really cool. We should do this. And he's coming up with all these different things. Let's get a funnel cake and all that. And, and just as he's starting to say these things and kind of give like this rap sheet of excuses, his older brother's behind me. goes, dude, you were scared. You ran off. And I was like, not, not what we rehearsed up at the top of the hill. Do you not remember that? And I think as I look at the, you know, where we're going to head today and what we're going to talk about, I think about this, this process of the roller coaster. And I think about all the planning that went into it and all the, the thought and everything that, that we, all the waiting and everything that, that, that took place in the process of getting to the roller coaster. And I think as we look at uh, Zechariah today, we're going to kind of look at how he, he was, he was, he was um, engineered and, and used by God to be able to reach the Israelites. And in so doing, he, he wanted to bring about more than just this specific action of doing something. He wanted to bring out this action of experiencing something, of being moved, of being changed, of having real formation in the lives of the people. Last week, if you were here, if you tuned in online, you heard Pastor Steve talk about the book of Haggai and how the prophet Haggai talked to the people as they returned. So basically what happened is the Israelites, because of their sinfulness, were, were exiled from Jerusalem, from the land, and they lived in Babylon and the surrounding areas. And at this point, nearly 70 years later, they were allowed to come back to Jerusalem. And as they came back, God used Haggai and Zechariah as contemporaries to be the mouthpiece for him to be able to tell them what to do. And basically Haggai's, uh, his 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 information or his um, encouragement for the people was, it's time to rebuild the temple. It's time to rebuild the temple so that you can, you can dwell once again in the presence of God. The whole time they were gone, they were unable to be in the presence of God, and so this was a great gift for them to be able to engage in. However, what happened through this instruction of Haggai was that they, they did the work, they just didn't have any formation, any change in what they were doing. Instead, they kind of just went through the motions. They did what they were supposed to do. They did what was asked of them. They were obedient, but they weren't changed. And so God realized this, and he continues to move forward by using Zechariah as the next mouthpiece to say, okay, it's more than just building this temple, but it's also about a formational experience. It's about something that I want to do. It's not just simple action. I don't know how many of you in here like to, to, uh, to be surprised at the end of a book or end of a movie. I am not with you in that case. I like to know what's going to happen. Sometimes I'll read the conclusion of a book or I will read or I'll watch the end of a movie or I'll, I'll read reviews on things because I want to know what's going to happen. And, and with that, a lot of times I can take what's happening and I can apply it to that final point. 
Well, today what I want to do is, if that's not you, that's okay, I'm still going to do it, Um, but I want to give you the bottom line or the final point so that you can see how everything kind of turns back to God, how it all turns back to who God is and what he has done in and through us. So if you're following along in your note guide, the first point is this. The action of authentic obedience is only made possible through recognition and humble acceptance of the power, the provision, and the presence of God. The, the action of, a, of authentic obedience is only made possible through the recognition and humble acceptance of the power, provision, and presence of God. And as I look at this, I see a couple things that I want to point out, and then we're going to move into them a little bit more deeply. The first one is that action uh, requires that, that there be some kind of an authentic, some kind of a real obedience. Like you can't be obedient, you can't take action, or excuse me, you can't take action without being obedient. So the goal there, the understanding is there has to be this underlying movement at the same time It's only made possible through how we position ourselves. First, that we cognitively understand, that we recognize that we can't do it ourselves, that we recognize that it's not about who we are or the actions that we take, but it's deeper than that. And that's where the humble acceptance comes in. Because the humble acceptance is is basically the salvation moment when we engage in the covenant that God has placed before us. And so as I read this and I understand it, I see that it's only done, that life change, that real formation is not done through my mere actions, but it's done through the power, the presence, and the provision of a great and holy God. And so today I want to read a few different passages from Zechariah that help kind of illustrate the themes of the book. And the first one is from chapter 1, verse 2, or chapter 1, verse 2 through 6. And this is Zechariah kind of setting the stage. He's talking to the people that are returning. Imagine he's standing there in Jerusalem and the people are starting to flood back into the community. They're starting to come back. Their work, some of them are already working. Some of them are coming in. And he's instructing them, helping them to see, here's how things have been and here's how things can be. And so I'm going to pick up in verse 2. You can read along on the screen or in your, uh, in your Bible if you brought it today. It says, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me declares the Lord Almighty. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, to, to overtake your ancestors? Now, here's, here's their response. This is what they say in response. Then they repent and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what, we, what our ways and practices deserve. They've received the consequences of what their ancestors had done, just as he determined to do so in God's will. And so here's the, here's the deal. The concept is they began to understand how their ancestors had wronged in the past, and so they began to push into this understanding of we need to rebuild the temple, we need to take action. However, they did so, and Zechariah recognized this, they did so without any kind of a real buy-in or any kind of a real heart to obedience. The effort here and the understanding here is that God is crying out for right relationship to dwell among his people. He he is crying out for them to rebuild the temple, not because he wants some grand structure that he can say, hey, look, look what I've got, but instead because he wants to dwell. He wants to be with his people and who they are. So what I want to do is I want to kind of explore the atmosphere and kind of parallel some of these things with our lives. And the first point, if you're taking notes, goes like this. God made the first move with a call to repentance as as he desires to once again dwell among his people. God made 
the first move. God made the first move. God made the first move. It had to begin somewhere. It had to have a starting point. I, I really appreciate um, the, the Brookings County Library for several different reasons. And one of those reasons is that they have uh, compiled a, a vast um, range of games that you can, that you can check out. Uh, and take home and try. And one of the cool things about it is you can try a game out, you can take it home. If you don't like it, you can, you can take it back. I'm talking about board games. I'm not a video gamer. But uh, my kids have really enjoyed this. They've, they've, they've brought home game after game, and we've tried some of these games out. And a couple weeks ago, I vividly remember them saying, Dad, we got Monopoly. And I thought to myself, usually I don't like to play games with them where there's a lot of strategy involved. Usually I like to play games like shoots and ladders where you just kind of roll the dice and whatever happens because I don't want to let them win. I don't like to. That's what grandparents are for, right? And so I, I remember them saying, let's play Monopoly. And, and for me, Monopoly growing up was uh, you take the money out of the game and you play grocery store with it and then you like play with that thimble thing and that was it. Like that was Monopoly to me. And so we decided we we're going to play by the rules because that's what they wanted to do and we began to play. And let me just say, when we started out, it was like this, let's play Monopoly. We all sat down by the fireplace and we're enjoying our time. And then 45 minutes later, one person is crying, like really distraught because they're bankrupt. And then another person is really mad and frustrated because nobody ever lands on my space and I always land on theirs and it's just not fair. And then the other person, the third person that's playing is like, I got all the money, I got all the properties. This is really going well. <laughs> I don't want to tell you who's who, but my kids are 10 and 8 and I am not. But as I look at that, I can't help but see if we apply this to life that there was a starting point when somebody said, let's play Monopoly. And then from that, a series of decisions, a series of reactions occurred. And at some point, somebody's mad or everybody's mad. We've, we go through these times of turmoil and adversity and frustration. And in life, this is how it works. And then sometimes what we do is we point back to that beginning and we say, man, I can't believe that God allows this to happen. I can't believe that he would create this, that he would do this. And so when we, when we look back to the beginning, we look at it almost with frustration, not really understanding or, usually, or, or even owning up to the fact that the things that happened after that perfect creation, after that start, were our fault. The things that, that, that happened were because we, as humans, introduced sin into the world and then we choose adversely sometimes against what God might have for us. God wants to commune with his people. And I think sometimes what happens too is that God will rarely interject where he's uninvited. And so sometimes we, 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 we do our own thing or, or we go about things our own way and we never really invite God. We start our day and we just get into it and we never really invite God to, to be part of what we want to do or where he wants us to go. And the first subpoint under that is this, his call to repentance requires more than blind action on the part of his people. It's more than just stepping into it and just kind of doing stuff. I was blessed last Sunday to be able to come and sit uh, at Oasis in the evening and listen to the recap of the trip that, that Pastor Dave Hopewell led to, to Michigan. It was awesome to see the students and leaders line up on the platform and talk about how God changed their lives. Talk about how they went into it, not with the mindset of I'm going to go and I'm going to change the world and I'm going to bring God to these people, but no, we're going to go and we're going to partner. We're going to see how God's already working. We're going to see what God wants to do in and through me and how missions is more than just something that you just check off. Like several of them even said, like when we got back, it was like, how can we continue to minister where we're at now? Not how can I check this off and then get out of doing any kind of work for the kingdom for the next 51 weeks before the next trip. 
And I've kind of been toying with this idea that I've heard recently and kind of, uh, you know, trying to figure out how it works, this idea of living on mission, this idea of, of treating every day and every instance like a short-term mission trip. You know, a short-term mission trip, if you've ever been on one, it requires three things. One, there's the preparation, right? There's the getting ready. You, you, you try to understand the people you're going to go to, the culture you're going to be immersed in. You're trying to figure it all out. The second part uh, within that is that you're, you're spiritually preparing yourself. And then the second part of the trip is you go, right? You're focused on, on the people, where you go. You get into their community. You're looking for ways to serve. It's not about you. You're selflessly serving. And then the third one is you come back and you debrief. You think about what God did and how you can use that to continue to glorify him. What if we, what if we looked at work? What if we looked at uh, school? What if, we, what if we looked at the time we spend at home as a short-term mission trip? Where we live on mission, where we push into it, not because it's the things we're supposed to do and the rituals that we, we, we step through uh, every single day or, or on a common practice, but instead we step into it, we push into it intentionally saying, how can I serve? How can I help the, the kingdom grow? How can I be part of what God is already doing? How can we live on mission as we move forward? And the second big point under that, sub point under that is God's desire is that we seek him. His first move for the Israelites after their return was to build the kingdom. His first move for us is to prepare our temple. Prepare our temple. He wants to get us ready. I think it's, it's, it's crucial that we see in this passage right here that God is not saying, okay, come to me right now having it all figured out. Come to me right now once you've got it all together and then I'll accept you. Instead, what he's saying is actually quite the opposite. Come to me as you are and I will bring the formation, the transformation that needs to occur in the life of my people. That's called holiness. We're, we're a holiness church. We believe that because of our relationship with Christ that we grow, that we change, that it's more than just some social club. This life of living and becoming more like Jesus. This book then points to Jesus. I, I joked with Pastor Steve as we were talking about the, the message schedule and they gave me this week to speak on. I, I was actually pretty flattered because some of the other prophet, you know, they talked about like destruction. They talked about like penalties and, 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 and really a lot of things that were difficult to take. This one just says, hey, love Jesus. Like the message is clear. There's a covenant and, and, and God wants you to engage within that or re-engage within that if you've strayed away from it. Love Jesus. And Zechariah is clear to point to that. Matter of fact, as he moves forward, the next eight chapters all talk about the visions that Zechariah had. And in these eight visions, he talks about the way that, that God is going to move in the life of the Israelites, the way that he's going to move in the world, the way that this, this mission is expanded. Matter of fact, each one has a counterpart out of the eight. So one and eight go together. It's kind of like a wraparound draft. Two and seven, three and six, and then four and five. And four and five are the pinnacle. That's where he reveals the coming of Jesus. That's where he reveals who God is. And so we're going to pick up in, in uh, chapter four, verse six and seven. This is part of the fourth vision. And it says, this is Zechariah. Uh, so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was a, a, a religious leader within the Israelites at that time. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 7 says, What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it. God bless it. And in this, this building, this structure metaphor that he's using, he's, he's using this idea, this, this concept of the capstone. 
And for us now, looking back on it 2,000 years after it's written, we know the capstone is referring to Jesus. We know that the capstone is referring to to, to the Messiah that's to come, something we're going to celebrate in a month uh, on Easter, this this idea of Jesus coming, the capstone. But at the same time, what he's making this comparison of saying, man is not enough, does not have the power, but the one who comes will. And it's until now that building the kingdom for these people was just a a thing that they did to try to to, to practice the right things or or to try to, to follow in obedience. And in essence, what Zechariah is saying is it's not necessarily just about what you do, but it's about who you are. And the second big point is God has greater concern for righteousness than the right observances of religious forms. God has greater concern for righteousness than the right observances of religious forms. And within that, what he's saying is it's more than just doing the religious things or following along in what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian, but it's about this, this change, this life change. One of the visions talks about Joshua. Joshua, a great leader of the Israelites at that time. And what what Zechariah actually sees is the sin of the Israelites on the cloak, on the clothes of Joshua. And then later on, as that vision continues, he realizes the brokenness and the incompleteness of Joshua and the power that he has. And then it, it, it shines light on this coming of the Messiah. And for those of us who know the story of Jesus on the cross, he wore the sins of the world. He wore the sins of all people in a full, complete way that no man could ever do or ever take place or ever, or ever have the power to overcome. Jesus is the way. Transformation takes place by his divine hand. And this is part of subpoint one. It says, crowning of Joshua was incomplete. I think the tendency that we have as, as people is that we want to, either we don't want to bother God with our, our problems, or maybe we think this is not that big of an issue, so I can do it myself. And we kind of put ourselves in a place where we think we have the power to be able to do the things that only God can do. And so we kind of do these things, when in essence what happens within us is this thing that dwells up or, or wells up in us is this, this concept of, of pride. And the problem of pride is that where pride exists in our lives, humility does not And the requirement needed to accept Christ as our Savior, the requirement needed to allow God to change us is a a, a posture, is a lifestyle of humility. When we take the the responsibility, when we relegate God's responsibility of of caregiver, of shepherd, of, 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 of leader in our lives to ourselves, what we do is we say, God, you don't have the power, we don't need you, and we make him a spectator, just watching us live our lives and do our thing. My wife tells me from time to time that I have an addictive personality, and I try not to be offended. It's not like I'm going down to Flandreau and and gambling our house away, but the things that I am addicted to are small and usually time wasters. At times, I I find it fun when the, uh, the internet goes out and I can play that little dinosaur game where you jump over the cactuses. So more of you have played it in here than did in first service, which I appreciate but right now, one of the things, now I don't have a sweet tooth, I, I, don't, I usually like salty snacks, I don't eat a lot of baked goods, but one of the things that I like is, is a, good, uh, a good candy. And usually from time to time, it changes with the season almost. From time to time, I'll, I'll choose a specific thing. And right now, and please don't shut me off when I say this, I feel like I'm going to tell you, and you're all going to be like, what, that guy? I'm out of here. So the candy I like right now is good and plenties. I heard a yes, thank you, amen. All right, so... So the Good and Plenty is basically a purple box filled with pink and white candy, and it's, it's black licorice, 
that's covered with like a coating of sugar. Now, let me just say, I don't like black licorice at all. But when you put that sugar on top, for some reason, it's delicious. And I know that when Cherie buys me a box of Good and Plenty, when she gets her groceries, or if she forgets and I go and buy a couple boxes for myself, I put them in the drawer, in the snack drawer, which is dad's snack drawer, and the kids know that. Of course, they would never touch this candy anyway. Benefit to eating something gross. Anyway, I put it in there. It's also the knife drawer, if you wanted to know that. But anyway, I know when I open that box of candy, I know without a shadow of doubt, when I open that box of candy, that it's not going to last long. I will open it up. I'll have a handful. I'll eat some. You got to eat a white one and a pink one together, even though there's no flavor difference at all. And I, I eat those. Then I will go and do some homework. And about 15 minutes later, it's time for a quick break, of course. So I go, I get a little bit more, go back, do some more homework getting a lot done. Then I go back, I have a little bit more, I go, I help Sharif put the kids to bed, tell them all goodnight, read some stories, whatever, come back down, have a little bit more. And sometimes I'll put a little in my pocket too, so I don't have to keep coming back to the drawer. That's why I wear pajamas that have pockets in them. And then I, then I go and I check the basketball scores, okay, that sounds good, have a little bit more, and then eventually that box is empty and it's in the trash. And here's the thing, when I look at that, I think, yeah, that's a silly little story, but that box was holding me captive. That box basically had power over me, and it still does until it's gone. And there are none in our house right now because I finished it off last night. Just want to let you know, uh, just sharing right now. But the next sub point I think is really telling and important for us to see as it pertains to life, and that is this. The things that hold us captive rarely secure power over our lives without first accepting or even receiving our permission. The things that we struggle with, the things that, that, that take your time, the things that, that cause you uh, to fall into temptation, those things rarely have power over your life, rarely keep you captive without you first saying yes to them. Typically, when, when we sin, it is on purpose. All right, we've been making a, a parallel at this point, or I have been. And I want to I make something clear. I think it can be very dangerous to read the Bible firsthand and to assume that everything that's being written there or everything you're reading is for you specifically because in most cases, it's not. Most of the time, you're listening in on somebody else's letter, like Paul writing to a, a, a church or maybe you're, you're reading somebody else's, uh, um, you know, you're listening to somebody else's call or whatever. And so it's, it's very important that you don't take what you read firsthand in every case. However, I think in this passage right here, as Zechariah moves forward, one of the things that he does is he makes the message for us. Before now, he's talking to the Israelites and we're kind of pulling out some things that are universal truths. But I want us to understand and see uh, that as, as Zechariah makes this transition from chapter 8 to chapter 9, what he's doing is saying, okay, those are the visions for Israel. But here is the Messiah for all. Here is the Messiah, the coming covenant for all people, for all mankind, for all people groups, for all cultures. And verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9 goes like this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king come to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a, fat, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I think what's important for us to note is, this is prophetic language. For when Zechariah wrote this, Jesus had not yet come. It's easy for us to be on this side of it and look and see Jesus and see Zechariah writing it. But on the other side, for the people that were there, Jesus had not yet come. And so they were in this place right here of that still being something that was yet to happen, yet to transpire. And so as we look at this, I think it's important that we realize and understand how great this scripture really is. Because right here, Zechariah is saying, God has shown me, God has told me, the Father has told me that there will be a Messiah. And that Messiah will be greater than Joshua, will be for all people. 
And point number three is God's renewal of his own, of his own people ultimately expands to including God's renewal of all creation. He didn't just stop with the Israelites and say, okay, this is, these are my chosen people. They kind of get it. They're good to go. Uh, they're they're going to have, you know, they're going to be able to dwell with me. No, he said, you know what? It's not just about the select people anymore. It's about all people. It's about me. It's about you. It's about the people that you engage with at work. You're like, man, they really frustrate me. Guess what? The covenant is for them too. It's for your family. It's for your friends. The, the, the covenant is for all people, all mankind of all places and all times. And sometimes we need to wake up and hear the fact that that call is for us. I was dropping my son off at school this past week, and as I did so, I pulled up real quick, and he got out of the car, and he did his customary wave and smile, which I wish uh, would ne- he'd never get older. I just love that. And, and he starts to walk away, and just as he did, I saw like a bus pulling up. And as the bus starts to pull up, I was like, oh, I think I'm a little bit in the bus drop-off area, so I pulled forward a little bit, and just as I did, I heard a honking sound. I was like, oh, oh, somebody, somebody's doing something dumb. And so I just, I started to pull forward a little bit more and I heard the honking sound again. And I looked back at the bus, I was like, is he honking? What's happening? And my daughter, who's 10 years old, sitting next to me and she's like, hey dad, uh, in her wisdom and, and experience driving, hey dad, the person next to you thinks they're going to pull out. And so they're honking to tell you not to. And just as she did, I looked over and there's like a person like, hey, yeah, they're nicely telling me don't pull out. And uh, if you're in here today, I love you still. But um, they... They were, they were trying to get my attention. I think sometimes we need to hear that honking. Sometimes we need to, 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 to have like this wake-up call. And right here, Zechariah is allowing, he's giving us this wake-up call to say, hey, it is, it, is, it is for you. Don't just read into this and say, oh, God loved the Israelites or God loves the, the person that's sitting next to me at church that, that has it all together. God loves it. No, God loves you too. And he's provided a covenant for you and it doesn't matter how long or how little you've gone to church or been a Christian. It doesn't matter what, how you grew up or, or where you come from. God loves you and he's created a way, a covenant for you. The future messianic kingdom will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant. And I don't want us to read this wrong because when, we, when you read the passage, especially in, in, in chapter 12, which we're not going to get to today, um, but when you read the passage, it talks about this idea of bringing the covenant to fruition. And I think sometimes we look at it and we think, oh, well, I have the power over God. I can do whatever. If I, wanna, if I want to hold off him bringing his covenant, I'll just not do what I'm supposed to. When in essence, what's happening here is God's making it individual for us. You know, we have this relationship where, where God created us with free will, right? And because we have free will, he gives us a little bit of power. And we have some power in our lives to say yes and to say no and to engage. And although God is ultimately in charge, he loves us so much that he allows us to choose. And with that choice comes power. And so with that power, we have the understanding and the principle of knowing that if we choose to allow God to renew this covenant or we step into this covenant with him, that is the renewal or that is the beginning of the covenant with you or with me or with the individual who is accepting Christ. It's not some grand, huge plan, but it's this person, this, this Jesus that came to have relationship and renew covenant with each one of us. So the question there, the response there, and there's not a fill in the blank on this one, is this. Will the kingdom come? Will the covenant be filled for you? I want to run through this renewed covenant at the bottom of your sheet, and we can kind of look at it real quick. It's going to kind of take Israel's platform and then um, an implication or an application for us. Israel is blessed with the opportunity to leave Babylon. 
And they do not have to leave, but when they do, they go to a place where God calls them to be on mission and to live. And the application or implication for us is God's call for us is to get involved in the life of ministry. God's call for us is that there be fruit from our relationship with him, not as a means to try to earn our salvation, but as a means of, of response to the love that we have experienced. The second one is Israelite, the Israelites are no longer to be identified with Babylon and its ways, but with God and Jerusalem. This is my favorite one out of the three, maybe even the best part of the message. We gain a new identity in life. We are adopted into a new family. We don't have to be part of that old life anymore, but this, this new shining light transforms and affirms a new relationship that we have. And then the third one is Babylon is doomed to terrible destruction. Therefore, Israel must not get caught up in Babylon's ways and in her fate. God is going to destroy them. And the application for us on this last one is do not get caught up in the ways of the world. For this leads to one's own demise and destruction. You know, I get discouraged when I think about Justin missing out on the ride that day on the roller coaster. And I get discouraged because I think about that as a metaphor for life. Because I think sometimes we might even cheer for that situation or we might even experience it ourselves. And by that, what I mean is sometimes when we see life and the circumstances before us, we attempt to try to avoid them. We attempt to say, okay, I'm just going to try to circumnavigate or, or, or slip through here and get away with it. And we, we miss out on the twists and the turns and the times when life turns us upside down altogether. Because it's in those moments, it's in those large moments or in those formative moments and those moments of struggle that God can truly do a work in our life. And it's through his power, through his provision, and with his presence that we are changed and that we can overcome. I want to leave you with two verses. These are the final two verses of Zechariah. I'm, I'm reading from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible. In chapter 14, verse 20 through 21, it says, On that day, the big day, all the horses' harness bells will be inscribed, holy to God. The cooking pots in the temple of God will be as sacred as chalices and plates on the altar. In fact, all the pots and pans in all the kitchens of Jerusalem and, Judea, uh, and Judah will be uh, holy to the God of the angel armies. People who come to worship preparing meals and sacrifice will use them. On that day, the big day, there will be no, bear, no buying or selling in the temple of the God and the angel armies. And so the response questions there below are for us today to ponder. Have you pressed into the presence and acceptance and accepted God as your Lord and Savior? And maybe the response to that one is, no, but I... I would like to. I would like to experience this freedom, not obedience, I have to trudge through a bunch of things I have to do, but experiencing a freedom, a covenant that only God can offer. And then the second one there, maybe you've gone to church for a long time or you've been part of it or you've been going through the motions. Do you need to renew the covenant that you once made? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these moments. We thank you for this time where we could come. We thank you for your power, your provision, and your presence. And I pray that we wouldn't see this as drudgery or as work that you're making us do, but an opportunity to be able to serve you and to love you and to be freed from the life of Babylon, the life of this world. And I pray that you would walk beside us and that we would allow you, Father, to renew the covenant or to start a covenant anew and afresh if we've never done so before. We place this in your hands. We thank you for your word. We love you. In your son's name that we pray. Amen.